Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Amiel Handelsman, an executive coach. Today we will discuss how to practice great leadership. Amiel, a change consultant based in Portland, Oregon, is the author of the 2014 book, Practice Greatness, Escape Small Thinking, Listen Like a Master, and Lead with Your Best. He has two decades of experience helping leaders and organizations rise to the challenge of complex change. Amiel, welcome. Lena, it's good to be here. Thank you. When we talk about leadership, this seems like a really everybody-knows-what-it-is concept. But there's a distinction, for example, between leadership and management. And I think for many people, those concepts can be confusing. Will you help us get started with our conversation today by defining what we mean when we say leadership? Sure. Thank you. That's a great, that's a great question, particularly since we do have these two terms, management and leadership. So, for me, leadership is something that you practice with other people for the sake of something larger than yourself. Management is something that you do when you are managing people or projects. Uh, leadership is a bit broader. So you can lead as a member of a family. You can lead as a member of a community. And of course, as many of the listeners of this program, you can lead within a large company, a small business, or in academia. And uh, I like to include in the definition of leadership that it's for the sake of something larger than yourself. Uh, it isn't just for you. And in fact, that is something that all of us adults are learning is how to do our everyday work in a way that has a, a broader impact. How would we define great leadership? What kinds of leadership are there? Because if you're not a good leadership, then are you even a leader? <laughs> yes, and that's, that's a big question. Let me give you my definition of greatness and great leadership. So I define greatness as realizing your full potential. And I'll say that again, realizing your full potential. It's the idea that each of us is born, as I heard someone say recently, as infinity. We have an immense number of possibilities. And yet, there are some things that we are particularly talented about. And for those listening, you may think back to when you were a kid, the things that you absolutely loved to do that people acknowledged you for. And hopefully, you have a chance to do some of those things now. And I'm not talking about necessarily a musical instrument or sports, but maybe it's being very detail-oriented, or maybe it's mobilizing people into action, um, or maybe it's being courageous. So there are all these different things that we can do that allow us to be great. And so I call that realizing your full potential in some domain of life. That's greatness. Great leadership is realizing your full potential for the sake of something larger than yourself. And I differentiate that from 
mediocre leadership. So mediocre leadership is where you're running an organization, you're running a business, and most of the time you're really thinking about what's best for you. And so that shows up in all sorts of interesting ways to uh, that comes out in how people see you. They may see you as uh, selfish or overpowering or so quiet because that's how you are. Uh, mediocre leadership is just doing something for yourself. Uh, good leadership I define as doing something essentially for your just your team, your tribe, your religion, your race, you name it. So it's more than me, it's we, uh, but it's only we. It's just your group. And great leadership is goes from from we or us to all of us. And that's where, as a great leader, you're not just thinking about the division within your company, you're thinking about the whole company and potentially partnerships with other companies. So it's a broader, you're basically looking at more people's interests as being part of uh, the decisions you make every day. And there's some great research in the leadership literature that shows that every time you get a promotion, particularly within a large company, in order to be successful, you have to put yourself in other people's shoes. If you grow up within a marketing function, at some point, you you have to stop just arguing or making the case for what matters to marketing. You have to take into account operations or finance, for example. So great leadership is putting yourself in the shoes of more and more people. Does that mean that you're a greater leader, the broader the scope of the, the, the way that you're viewing things becomes, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that right? I would say so, yes. Uh, particularly as you have, let's say, more levels of organization that report to you or you're attempting to impact more people. So the, the demands of great leadership go up the bigger, the bigger the impact that you're trying to have. Uh, if you're managing a team of uh, 10 or 15 people, uh, what, what, what it means to be great leadership in that situation is different than if you're managing an organization of, let's say, 10,000 people. Uh, what's important is that you are able to put yourself in the shoes of that group of 10 or 15 people and your boss and your peers and your boss's boss, Okay. But if you're managing an organization of 10,000 people, the, the expectation is a little higher. And that's why I think it's, we see, for example, so many CEOs turning over so quickly. They're not up to the demands of that much complexity. They just can't handle it. Can't put themselves in that many people's shoes. And so they make really big mistakes. Is it, do you think an inherent part of that ability to be a great leader to understand the priorities of the company not just the stated priorities but there's always the priorities that are sort of in black and white and then there's the informal priorities the ones that are really practiced within the company do you think that it's essential to have an understanding of both of those and where they meet in order to practice great leadership 
I, I think the answer is absolutely yes. And this is where the notion of a good political antenna comes into play because even at the very senior most levels of any organization, let's just say a Fortune 500 company, they're not making decisions purely for shareholder value. They're not even making decisions purely for larger profits. They're human beings. And so they're making decisions based upon all sorts of other things, like uh, what's it going to take for uh, their perspective to win in the organization? Or let's say they're protecting a division of the company that they grew up in and that's important to them. Uh, they may be making decisions based upon that. And so if you <laughs> if you advocate for something that threatens that executive's priority and you're not aware of it, you may be sticking your foot in your mouth. So it's not enough just to, quote, unquote, be good or speak on behalf of what you think is in the company's best interest. But there are all these unwritten rules, as, as you point out, about how decisions are made, what's taboo, what can you talk about, what can you not talk about. And the ability to understand those unwritten rules is something that we learn. We don't get them when we're hired at a company. In fact, we're usually pretty oblivious. So, and, and even in the first year or two, we're still listening and observing to see how do things work around here? How are decisions actually made? Who really has the most impact on the decision that I'm trying to influence and who doesn't? And just as importantly, setting aside the formal organizational chart, what are the informal lines of communication? If I'm trying to influence a certain person, who do they listen to and how can I reach them? So these are all the the informal parts of what we might call power and influence within an organization. And they all matter. What are the biggest obstacles that you've seen in practice to improving leadership in organizations? Is it this sense of keeping things familiar around, of not wanting change? You mentioned a minute ago about an executive that was fond of something. What would you say are the biggest challenges, the biggest obstacles? One of the biggest obstacles is that we don't, in most organizations, view leadership as something that you have to practice, uh, nor do we actually invest a lot of time and energy in helping people, as I put it, put themselves in other people's shoes and be able to communicate that effectively. So the short way of saying that is that particularly most big organizations, the senior managers and actually the managers at every level, they're really focused on performance more than they are on developing people. 99% of their mind, mind share in 99% of organizations, and obviously I'm just, this is not a mathematical uh, 
<laughs> number here, but a lot of attention is focused on just performing and not on developing. And this is how we take it to be. This is the way things work. And yet, if you look at other fields, other fields of life, for example, music or sports, you don't get great at performing just by performing. You have to practice. So for any listeners who grew up playing, let's say, soccer or baseball or the guitar, did you get better just by doing performances or games? You would never consider that. In fact, if that's all you did, you wouldn't make it very far. And yet, all of us that work in organizations think that the way to get better is just by performing a lot. So for me, the, the number one obstacle is, is simply that we don't put a lot of time and attention on developing people. So that's one. Uh, number two is that when we do, when organizations do put energy into developing people, I don't think we do it in a way that actually matches what the leadership shows. So there were some wonderful leadership in the late 70s and early 80s by an organization called the Center for Creative Leadership. And they interviewed several hundred exemplary leaders and asked them how they got to be that way. And these were long interviews. And what they found was that 48% of what they learned came from the assignments they had, the particular jobs or the particular projects that they were engaged in. That's how they got better. 18% came from other people. 17% came from hardships. And only about 11% came from other sources. And the key number here I want to mention is that only 6% came from courses, from training. 6% from training. And only if that training matched what they were learning on the job. 6% from training. What percentage of our leadership development dollar do we spend on training? A lot more than 6%. 50, 80, 90, depends upon where you work. In fact, the leadership development industry is often known as the leadership training industry. So we're spending our money in a way that actually doesn't work very well. Uh, and what does work is by matching people up with the jobs or assignments that will teach them what they need to learn and doing it thoughtfully. And that's something that their manager, the person who hires them or gives them assignments, has the most um, control over. And so that's the third The third thing that gets in the way is that the people in many companies that see themselves responsible for leadership development are within human resources. And uh, I work with a lot of people in human resources. There are many good people, very many skilled people in human resources. And yet even if you have the most strategic HR functions, it doesn't make a difference unless the managers at every level say to themselves, I've got to give my people the best on-the-job learning that I can, and I'm going to help them structure their experiences to do that. So just to summarize, uh, we don't put enough attention on it. The attention that we do put on it uh, doesn't match the research, and the people 
who need to be spending time on it. The managers generally aren't. So those are <laughs> a few pretty big challenges. Well, looking at, for example, the third point that you made, that many of the people who are charged with being leaders rose up through the ranks in many cases, but nobody has ever taught them how to be managers or how to be leaders. They were doing X, Y, or Z job, and they were doing a good job, so they got promoted to managing other people who were doing the same thing they were doing. Absolutely, right? absolutely, and I'm realizing that the way I spoke, I, it could sound like I'm pointing my fingers at managers, but it, the reality is, yeah, we haven't had the role models, and people learn. There's a lot of brain research that talks about mirror neurons, which are basically parts of the brain that help us to learn just by being around, watching, and listening other people. And if the people that we're watching and listening as we, let's say, become a supervisor for the first time and we now have direct reports or now we're managing supervisors or beyond that, and at every level, if the person that's managing us doesn't invest a lot of their time or energy in helping us become better managers because they haven't gotten that attention themselves, we never learn how to do it. So, yes, it, it passes down from generation to generation. Uh, it's possible to turn it around, and that's what my work, what my consulting and coaching work, and what my book is about. It's just hard. The obstacles are there. And I think it goes to what you were talking about earlier, that performance is what's rewarded, that training and leadership don't, provide immediate profits is what I read between the lines and therefore it's not something that companies seek out but without that how can you succeed how can you prosper how can you become profitable yes and one thing that's interesting about that assumption is some research that actually correlates investment in developing people with the performance of the company so, for example, there was a study done by Hewitt Associates in 2005 that looked at 20 top performing companies and how they treated leadership development with how other companies that were not top performing handled leadership. And I'll just give you uh, a couple of numbers. So in the high-performing companies, in 80% of those companies, senior leaders were held accountable in their performance management. In other words, in their compensation for developing their direct reports. 80% held accountable for developing their direct reports. In the other companies, the less successful companies, only 35% of senior leaders were held accountable. So that's one number. A second number is that in the top 20 companies, 100% of the of the time, the CEO was actively involved in developing talent, spending a lot of time on it. That was true in only two-thirds of the other companies. So although we think and we assume that developing people is not job one or it's a tangential activity, it doesn't actually matter, when we take a look at the research, we learned that actually it does matter. 
how do these concepts translate, or do they, to small businesses and nonprofits and academia where the models and the business aspects have a slightly different emphasis, if you will, where the bottom line may not necessarily be the dividends to shareholders or the bonuses to executives and the culture might be different, but you still have to have some form of leadership. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, let's take those one at a time because I've worked in all those areas. So in small companies or in any medium or large company that is not publicly owned, this pressure to appease Wall Street or provide a return to your shareholders is not there. And that's a wonderful thing because that pressure for quarterly returns is is immense at the top and it just feeds it way its way down. So that's that's the nice thing. Uh I think there are different challenges in smaller uh companies, smaller organizations, particularly those that are founder led and you have this famous phenomenon known as the founder's syndrome or founder's dilemma where at some point it's time for that person to pass the reins on, to move it on to a successor. And because that person, she or he, created the company, it's like their baby. And uh, I have two kids. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to get – I love my kids, and people love their companies. And so to hand it off to someone else is very, very challenging. Uh, a second challenge, I think, in a small small business is that uh, you don't actually have the financial resources to develop people. Uh, the good news is that there aren't as many people to develop. And so if you do it consciously, uh, there are fewer people to actually to focus on than in one of these massive companies. Uh, academia is different. And I started off in my career in the early and mid-1990s working with a lot of universities, particularly academic health centers, and there every, things are completely different. Uh, for example, the president and dean of universities have much less power than you might think. Department chairs have a lot of institutional power, and yet department chairs themselves often don't become department chairs because they are very good at leading people, although they may be, they get that way for other reasons. And in some places, when I would speak to people and ask them, you know, how did you get to be department chair? They said, well, it was my turn. Uh, so there, there, in many cases, there isn't even an expectation of uh, being able to manage or lead particularly well. You're kind of left on your own. And so the situation is, um, is a little bit different. Often you have great technical expertise. Uh, nonprofit organizations... I would say, are in a way closer to small business, except here there isn't as obvious of a measure of return. Now, there's been a lot of efforts the last 15 or 20 years to quantify the results of not-for-profit organizations. And I think, generally speaking, these efforts are a good thing, as long as we don't get caught up in too many numbers. Um, but there... The challenge is how do you know that you're actually being successful as an organization? What are your measures? 
And uh, I think the challenges of developing leadership are somewhat similar is that you don't have as much financial muscle behind you to, uh, to invest in it. When we look at leadership styles, if you will, what, what kind of choices do companies have? If we look at the spectrum we've just discussed, small, medium companies, academia, nonprofits, and your garden variety Fortune 1000, Fortune 500 companies, mm-hmm. say that somebody's put this hat on you that says, okay, Amiel, you are today in charge of putting together a leadership plan, say that you're working as a volunteer or a hired hand, however you want to look at it. What are your choices? What can you pick and how do you go about doing that? Is there a is there a guide that everybody falls back on or are there a bunch of different perspectives and you have to choose the one that you are most compatible with? What does the field look like? Great. So there are, let me make some distinctions. So there are a number of tools or instruments that help you to understand the style of how you lead. One of the most famous ones is the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is the instrument that popularized the notion of extroverted and introverted. And, uh, what those, and I'll just say what those terms mean. Uh, Extroverted means you get your energy from the outside world of people and ideas. It doesn't mean you're always outgoing. It means that you get refueled that way. Uh, an introverted person may love hanging out with other people, but when they're tired, they need to go inward. And so that's where they're able to restore their energy. So this is an example of extroverted versus introverted. It's a very simple yet important style difference. And once you understand it about yourself, you can manage your time and in your energy better. And also, let's say you have a team of 10 people. You'll be more successful with those 10 people if you don't treat them all the same. And just to use this very basic distinction, if you know that these three are extroverted and seven others are introverted, it will affect how you talk with them, how you set expectations with them, how you give them feedback, perhaps even how long of a meeting you spend with them. If you meet with them, say, weekly, one-on-one, to talk about how things are going, you'll have different expectations of them in team meetings. All of this just from one distinction of extroverted versus introverted. So, And, of course, it helps to know that about yourself, particularly because so many of the people that I work with are tired. They are working really hard, and that cuts across the board. Uh, People are just just working very, very hard. And so it's really important to know how where do you go to refuel your energy. And so I'm making two points here. One is understanding yourself, and the second is understanding the people that you work with. And a mistake that a lot of us make is that we assume everyone else is just like me, which basically means if I have 10 direct reports, I'm going to treat them all as though they're like me. And then I'm going to get frustrated when it turns out that they're not. Now, some of us make the same mistakes as parents. (laughs) 
Um, but I think we actually figured it out, figure it out faster as parents than we do, uh, as managers in organizations. Uh, I don't know. The feedback from kids is a little bit more direct and a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more immediate that they're not like us. Uh, so yeah, understanding your own style. Again, there are lots of different ways to do this. I just gave one example from Myers Briggs and understanding the styles of the people that you work with and customizing to them. Uh, Myers-Briggs is one. Another great instrument is called uh, Strengths Finder, and it, it focuses on what are the natural talents that each person has. Uh, for example, one of my natural strengths or talents is called responsibility, and it means that I like to, when I promise to do something, I'm going to go ahead and do everything I can to fulfill that promise um, or let the person that I can't let them know that I can't or, you know, with a new timeline, not just to make them happy, but because that's sort of, that's how I'm wired. Now, other people, that may not be a big strength for them. And if somebody is reporting to me, doesn't have that strength, but let's say they're great at coming up with ideas. Gosh, I'd be, I ought to be managing them differently. And, uh, and there are many, many different strengths in this instrument, the strengths finder. So, that's the second one that I see an increasing number of organizations using just to say, what, it, what are the strengths of the people on my team? What are the strengths of my peers? If we can understand this about each other, we're going to get along a, a lot better. And the challenge, of course, is that many times you have reluctant leaders, people who are thrust into these roles and they don't really want them either because it's a required promotion or because it comes with a, a increase in salary, and sometimes because leadership styles may also shift over time, right? They may, yes, depending upon the environment. So these are, as you pointed out, just a couple of ways to look at it, but they can be a lot more complex as you look at all the layers that are involved and all of the interrelationships that are going on in a particular scenario. How do you get to this place of greatness? You talk in the book, uh, you start from a personal level or a personal experience um, for you and your wife and how this brought you to the idea that, yes, in fact, you could strive for greatness. Would you tell us about that? Yes. So the the my book, Practice Greatness, opens with a story of essentially my wife uh, telling me that uh, she was pregnant. And I say to her, that's impossible. The doctor said we had a one in 10,000 chance. And, you know, she's holding up the little test strip and she says, no, I'm pretty sure. And I say, well, <sighs> you know, I think to myself, gosh, I don't believe you because we met with that doctor and he told us, but okay. And, you know, she was so radiant in telling me that we were going to have a child that I, I, I wanted to go along with it. And, you know, eight months later, our first son was born. And so for me, this was an, an example of realizing that, you know, life can be more, can be bigger, can be better than we often think. And so it planted a seed in me for encouraging leaders and particularly the readers of this book to think bigger to assume that more is possible than they might otherwise assume. Whether they wanted the job that they have, whether they were thrust into it, as you say, 
to be open to that possibility. And there's another notion in the book I talk about, which is the notion of ignition. And uh, I borrow this notion from an author named uh, Daniel Coyle, who's written a wonderful and, and quite popular book called The Talent Code. And he talks about ignition as the moment when ordinary people decide to dedicate themselves to extraordinary skill development. And I'm just going to uh, quote him. I, I have this quote here right in front of me. He says that ignition is a hot, mysterious burst, an awakening that works through lightning flashes of image and emotion. Evolution-built neural programs that tap into the mind's vast reserves of energy and attention. It's about the moments that lead us to say, that is who I want to be. So in order to actually want to do the hard work of practicing great leadership, we need to be ignited. There needs to be a reason for us to want to do that. And so for all, you know, for all of your listeners, some may have had that moment and be really on a dedicated path. Some may have thought they had that moment, but they're not quite sure. And some may have yet to have that moment of ignition. But I tell you, the hard work of practicing the skills of putting yourself in other shoes, thinking bigger, uh, it's hard work. And it will, is most likely to happen when we're actually ignited to do it. And so when I, you know, I coach a lot of, a lot of managers, middle managers, senior managers, and one of the prerequisites for me is they have to be open. In other words, want to get better. So if someone doesn't want to improve or get better, I don't think it's worth trying to change them. You know, people have a right to be who they are. But for those of us who actually say, gosh, for whatever reason, I want to get better at what I'm doing, whether I call it great or good or a little bit better, we can call it whatever you want. But to be open to that, to want it, a lot of other things become possible. That makes me think of a, I don't know what you would call it, trivia that I found one day that said that some passengers never want to sit in the front row of a plane. And I I was baffled why they wouldn't. Oftentimes, certainly if you're sitting in coach, but even if you're sitting in business or first class, there's nobody in front of you. You might have a, an overhead. There's a lot of space. Why wouldn't you want to sit in the front row? Mm. And then an airline staff person explained that a lot of people feel uncomfortable being the first ones because there was nobody in front of them. They couldn't see what they were doing, but everybody else could see them. This makes me think of when you say that not everybody wants to be a leader, and if they don't, and they don't have this ignition, then maybe they just need to be who they want to be. How do you know? This may seem a really basic concept, but say that you get promoted, or say that you're thinking of promoting someone. You own a small business, and you need to find good people. Whichever the scenario is, how do you know? How can you identify whether someone has these skills or these natural talents? I'm not sure whether they have to be one or the other. How do you make your decision? Are there signs that point you in the right direction? Yeah, I'll give you a couple. And I think it's a great 
there's a lot to say about that airplane analogy. I think it's a fascinating one. Uh, we might come back to it, but let me answer your question directly. So there's skill and then there's enjoyment. So there's a skill of managing people, or we might say leading people. And the skill is getting things done through others instead of getting them done yourself. Getting them done through others versus getting them done yourself. This is a really important thing for organizations to pay attention to and for all of us as we consider leading, particularly within organizations. If we're going to take that step into what is known as a supervisory or a managerial role, uh, are we good or could we get good at getting things done through others? And the, the skills there involve what's popularly known as delegating, uh, it also isn't just delegating as in you hand off a task. It is uh, being in communication with people as they're doing well or struggling, giving them feedback in a way that they can hear. Remember we said people have different styles. So having the skill to not just give people things to do and you know measure their results, but to help them get better at what they're doing. And so skill at getting things done through others versus getting things done yourself. Now, a second is enjoying it. There are some people that I have worked with who were on the front lines in whatever field. Let's just say they were an engineer and they got promoted into engineering management and realized they would rather just be an engineer. They didn't actually want to be responsible for getting work done through others. So that's a really, really pivotal decision to make. It's not just whether you're good at it, but it's also whether you enjoy it. Because if you enjoy it, you're going to put the energy into getting better at it, and the people that report to you are going to appreciate it a lot more. Uh, now, this raises another point, which is that because, as we talked about earlier, most people entering managerial roles don't have really good role models. One of the things that they don't have good role models at is really de delegating effectively. And so there's this kind of strange phenomenon of people getting promoted three, four, five levels within an organization, and I'm thinking a large organization now, who've actually never really let go of getting work done by themselves. They haven't actually made that pivotal transition to getting work done through others. And uh, so that's that's something you want to learn really early on and know, first of all, that you could be good at it, and second of all, that you enjoy it. So that's where I would start. You talk about the fact that change, when you are in the position of being a leader, you are forced to look at situations that might be uncomfortable or awkward or unfamiliar, unusual, and that these might lead you to greatness, but that at first it might be d difficult for you to confront. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so we're talking about awkward or uncomfortable moments that are actually opportunities in disguise. Is that is that your question? 
Yes, you talk in, toward the end of the book, you talk about some of the challenges that you face as you embark on a leadership path. And you say that the practice, and I'm quoting here from page 223, the practices that evoke greatness are unusual and often uncomfortable, at least at first. These practices are also uncommon and can look weird. Others may have negative judgments about them, and so may you. That, that's the sort of the place that I was going to. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now I know. Yes, that's, yeah, that's, thank you. Thank you for quoting too. Yeah, so there's a couple of parts about it. One is that trying to speak and listen to, and live differently, to say different things, to listen to people better, which are really two of the core focuses of leading. Because what are we doing uh, most of the time? We're communicating. And when we're communicating, we're either talking or we're listening. So getting better at those things means doing things differently. And that's that's kind of hard. You know, I'll give you uh, a, an example. So I right now am uh, coaching someone who the way that he listens in meetings is for what could go wrong. And so when a member of the team makes a suggestion, his first response is to point out why that might not work. Somebody comes up with an, an idea they're excited about, and he, he points out why that might not work. And for him, this is a noble thing to do. This is what he's been doing his whole life. In fact, he's gotten a long way by being able to point out the pitfalls on the path and how to get around them. Unfortunately, the person that he's pointing it out to very often doesn't have his same style of leadership, same way of looking at things. And they want to spend some time talking about the new idea that they have. And so when he says, well, here's why that won't work, they get triggered, they get cut off, and they're less likely to speak up again. Their ideas will get cut short. And so what I've been working with him on is not getting rid of that uh, ability to see pitfalls on the path, but just holding it inside a little bit, not leading with it. So if someone shares an idea in a meeting to, be, to say, ah, tell me more about that, or I imagine you've thought a lot about this. Help me understand what this might do or some of the benefits of this. In other words, to, to listen differently, uh, to listen for what could go well, not just what could go wrong, and also to speak differently, to actually say and encourage the other person to share their idea more fully and maybe even have the other seven people in the room do the same. Now, for this person that I'm mentioning, what I suggested was not easy and is not easy. He's been doing it for 15 years. This is just how he works. So the hard part is interrupting that pattern which starts with recognizing the very moment when he's about to say, no, that's not going to work because. And at that very moment going, uh-oh, you know, here I go again. It's kind of like, you know, I used to play tennis and maybe some listeners play tennis. I used to run around my backhand because I was better at the forehand than the backhand. And at some point my coach would say to me, you know, you're running around your backhand. Why? Why don't you just hit the backhand and you'll get better at it? And I did. And it actually, if you want to be a good tennis player, it's, it's really good to, to hit a good backhand and not to run around it. 
Similarly, for this person I'm coaching, it's actually really good to ask people that work with them to share their ideas. It actually makes them a, the team higher performing, and yet it's hard. Just like it was hard for me to stop running around my backhand, it's hard for this person I'm mentioning to to actually encourage other people to speak in a more positive way. But the opportunity is to have a team that is innovating and thriving as opposed to one that is um, it's kind of sputtering along. Now, that's just one example. There are eight or ten different styles of leadership that we can either get stuck in or we can do the hard work of sort of growing out of them and uh, expanding our repertoire. So that's why I say that some of the most difficult or uncomfortable things that we might practice actually create the biggest opportunity. Now, I wanted to address another thing you quoted, which is about looking weird, okay? So most people in in business and in organizations pretty much work nonstop. They might take – we might take a little lunch break. Maybe we'll walk to a meeting and that might feel like a break. But for the most part, a lot of the people, a lot of the teams that I work with are nonstop working. So at practice – and so we get tired and we're not always in the best mood and uh, we don't make as good of decisions when we're constantly moving. So one of the practices that I uh, encourage people to do is actually to take short breaks. We might call them a body-centered break during the day. And that can mean uh, a simple thing like going out for a 15-minute walk or just sitting in your chair and taking some deep breaths for a couple minutes uh, or listening to some relaxing music. Now, a lot of people get embarrassed by this. Gosh, I must, people are going to think I'm not, you know, I'm not working. Well, there's, uh, you know, a ton of research that shows that in any field, if you want to be a high performer, you have to take breaks and renew. And, in fact, there's some that says in, in organizations, every 90 minutes, if you're working at a high level, you've got to take a break. Otherwise, your performance goes down. So whatever way you take a break, whatever way you renew yourself, you may be a little embarrassed by it. Um, and so maybe, you you know, <laughs> you know I, have, I have some clients who will, you know, rather than sitting at their desk, they'll, they'll go out to their car and uh, just listen to some classical music or some jazz or whatever kind of music they like for, for 10 minutes because they don't want people to see them just sitting there. Uh, and that's fine. Whatever works for you. Um, but that, that, that challenging practice, that awkward practice actually has the opportunity to make a big difference. And, and so that's what I meant. And it's a really good question. Thank you. One of the concepts that you talk about in the book is healing your Achilles heel, if I got the term correctly. You did. You, and you refer to CCL and some research that they did a few years back. Would you tell us about that and what it means? Yeah, I will. So the Center for Creative Leadership did did research that I it was similar to the one I mentioned earlier in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, here they were looking at what they called leadership derailers. So the metaphor is if you're a train speeding down a track, you know, these are the factors that can throw you off track. And so they wrote this up and 
and it was actually quite made quite a big splash in organizations just to put just to realize that people can get derailed from their careers. And so it's in a lot of our self-interest not to get derailed. And they gave some specific examples of things that might derail you, like thinking that you're always right or not listening or treating everyone the same. I use the the, the term Achilles heel, um, which is the, you know, the ancient uh, Greek warrior who uh, basically has this heel that uh, basically when he was uh, – <laughs> When he was born, uh, his, uh, you know, mother, uh, dipped him into this, this, uh, body of water to keep him from, uh, to give him the powers of invulnerability, but she had to hold him by the heel. So that's where the term Achilles heel comes from. She was holding him by the heel, so the heel never got in this healing water. And so all of us have this, this heel, sometimes it's actually more than a heel, that is, it, basically, if, if an arrow strikes it, we're toast. You know, we're, we're gonna get ourselves into trouble. So the the person I mentioned a few a few minutes ago in the interview who always points out what's wrong, you know that's an Achilles heel, and yet there's a way to heal it. And I gave an example of that. Uh, let me give you another example. So there is another Achilles heel, which is uh, always trying to make peace, always trying to harmonize groups and bring people together. Now. You know, your listeners may be hearing me and saying, well, you know, isn't that a good thing? Isn't collaborating a good thing and listening well a good thing? Well, it is, except in the following way. If you're always agreeable and always agreeing to what other people want, and they think you agree with them, and then three months later you say, no, I really don't support this, people feel that you've jerked them around, right? And I actually have had some very senior executives that I worked with who sort of shook their heads yes for some pretty significant plans uh, for their company. And then a few months later said, yeah, I'm not really behind it, and I never really was behind it. Folks got really upset. Now, this person wasn't intentionally deceiving them. They were unconsciously just going along to get along, just kind of harmonizing. So that's their Achilles heel. And so the way for that person to heal their Achilles heel is different than the way that the pessimist I mentioned earlier would do it. For this person, it's being able to actually say, ah, what do I like and not like about what I'm hearing? And to speak that up, even at the risk of having conflict. So that's a second example of uh, an Achilles heel. A third example is somebody who is always positive and always wants to stay positive um, about everything, including when, let's say, a member of their team comes to them frustrated and upset. And so this person uh, will say, cheer up, or it's no big deal, or look on the bright side. And, you know, we might think, well, yeah, we all ought to look on the bright side. Looking on the bright side is a good thing. Except when you're frustrated and upset and someone tells you to look on the bright side, you think to yourself, boy, this person doesn't care and isn't even listening to me. And all they want to do is look on the bright side. So that's an Achilles heel. And many of us may 
know people who are like this or be someone like this. And so to heal this Achilles heel requires a different set of skills. It requires the skill of actually being able to kind of hang out while other people are upset and listen to them and acknowledge their frustration. Not, not try and fix it and not try and put a, you know, smiley face on it, but just to kind of hang out there. And that's hard, but that's what it means in that case to, to heal your Achilles heel. And so in my book, I, you know, I provide examples of essentially nine different Achilles heels and, and so nine different ways uh, to heal them. I'm hearing in these examples and throughout our conversation that it's very important to listen in your leadership role to really listen to what people are saying to you. Uh, in the example that you talked about, the person felt after several months had passed that the leader had let them down. If the leader had been paying attention to what his or her staff were saying, then they might have avoided the whole disappointment. Would you tell us a little bit about that, the importance of communication and specifically listening? Yeah, so listening, you know, we listen through filters. Of We don't just listen to what people say. <laughs> you know, so this leader that I mentioned, there's this filter. I call it a listening filter. And the listening filter goes like this. Will this create more conflict or less conflict? Or is this a situation where there's conflict or no conflict? And so he tends to avoid the situations where there's a lot of conflict and go towards the situations where there's less conflict to the extent where he actually stops really listening to people when there's a fight. It's just so uncomfortable. It's physically uncomfortable. And... Uh, one of the earlier persons that I mentioned, earlier examples, who kind of listens for what goes wrong, may actually not hear the positive potential of someone else's idea. They literally filter it out. And so here, listening is, this is a different, uh, this is Amiel's kind of uh, like maybe wacky uh, understanding or somewhat unorthodox definition of listening. Usually when we talk about listening, we talk about kind of like nodding your head up and down or saying, hmm, uh-huh, I see. Now, those are all good things, and that we call that active listening. And that's something that I practice, and a lot of listeners may practice, and that's all good. But there's a point where just kind of nodding our heads and saying, uh-huh, uh, only goes so far because if our brain is filtering out filtering out certain things, uh, then we actually don't take it in. The other person may think we're hearing them, but they may realize once we speak that we're not actually listening. And so this is where it's really important. Again, this is in the category of self-awareness, which is a lot of what my work is about. It's about being more self-aware, is knowing what do you filter in and what do you filter out. And so just as there are nine Achilles heels, there are nine listening filters. And so to get better at them is to know what we filter in and, uh, and what we filter out. And, um, by doing so, we can actually pay attention to people to actually what I'll call be more present with them. And that sounds like a fancy term, be more present. But if you put yourself in the shoes of the person speaking, 
you know when someone is present with you. You know when they're there. You know when they get you, right? And you also know when they don't get you, when their mind is somewhere else or where they're faking it. They may not even be looking at you. They may be checking their text messages or they may be checking checking their email or looking on their desk, multitasking as we call it. Okay, so that's kind of the obvious way. But even when someone's looking at you and nodding their head, you can kind of tell whether they're there with you and whether they're not there with you. But now let's say you're that person. How do you know that? That's a lot harder. So that's why becoming a better listener actually takes a lot of practice. And one of the things that I encourage people to do is to ask for feedback. And so I was just meeting with um, a woman the other day, and I, I gave her what I call a practice, which is in the next two weeks, she's going to meet one-on-one with five direct reports. And what I asked her to do is at the beginning of every meeting to say to her direct reports, listen, I'm trying to get better. Uh, I'm trying to get better in how I listen to you. So at the end of the meeting, I'm going to ask you, when did I seem to be kind of here and when was I somewhere else? You know, when was I kind of distant or absent? Will you let me know? And then for, at the end of the meeting, for her to go back and, and ask those very questions. And so uh, I'm meeting with her next week. I'll find out what happened. But the point is we can't do this ourselves. Uh, we can't get better at leadership. We can't get better at listening just by ourselves. We have to ask other people for feedback. That's hard to do, but it's actually how we get better. It's how we get better at soccer, baseball, the guitar, you name it. There's always someone there to give us feedback, and listening uh, is no different. What tips, what suggestions would you share with our listeners, Amiel, that they can take back to their jobs, to their lives, because many of the things that we practice at work sometimes translate to our personal lives and our volunteer activities. What tips would you share with them, let's say, I don't know, three to five tips that they can take with them that might improve their leadership skills? Uh, Tip one. Get at least eight hours of sleep a night. This sounds like a funny thing to say as tip one, but when we get enough sleep, and a lot of research shows that like 90 or 95% of us need eight hours. When we get enough sleep, we think more clearly, we make better decisions, and we're better listeners. If you think you do well on five or six hours of sleep, uh, you are either uh, not aware of what it's like to sleep like eight hours, or you may have some kind of uh, undiagnosed sleeping disorder that might you might want to get di- diagnosed. So eight hours of sleep a night. Second of all, take breaks. Take breaks every 90 minutes. And this is for the same reason. We can only perform at a high level when we have a chance to renew ourselves. So take a break every 90 second, uh, ninety minutes, <laughs> not 90 seconds. That's number two. Number three is to find someone trusted in at work, at home, who can give you candid, loving feedback about yourself, where you can actually ask them, how am I doing? And they can tell you how you're doing. 
in whatever skill you're trying to work on. So if you interrupt people a lot, maybe your spouse or significant other would be a good person to tell you when that day you interrupted them and when you didn't or ditto at work. So get a trusted, loving source of feedback would be number three. And the fourth thing that I would say is actually to pick one thing to focus on. Don't try and get better at 10 things at once. Just pick one. It might be interrupting people less. It might be speaking about the things that can go right rather than the things that can go wrong. It might be getting to know the people that you volunteer with, that work for you, that are in your family, and understanding the type of communication that they need. Whatever it is, pick one thing and practice it. And that's the the fifth and final suggestion, is to practice it every day. Practice when you're on the job, in your family, or volunteering. And then also practice it off to the side. And there are actually ways that I give my clients, just like you have a, a music lesson with a music teacher, you can actually practice speaking in certain ways uh, you know, by yourself. And there's the classic example of the person who wants to be a better public speaker, so they practice by themselves in front of the mirror. You don't need anyone else. It's not on the job. Your spouse is not there. Your kids are not there. It's just you, but you will get better. So those are the five places that I think are pretty universally applicable for uh, listeners to use, and I, and I hope that they're helpful. Thank you, Amiel, for joining us from Portland, Oregon. It has been a pleasure, Lena. Thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Amiel Handelsman, who is an executive coach and author of Practice Greatness, who discussed how to practice great leadership. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.